It is our 50th year at Calvary Christian School. Our 50th lap around the track. There are over 1,400 graduates of the school now. We are well into the graduates who send their children to school, what are called uh, legacy enrollments, where you build between generations momentum where kids come. It's an exciting time to be around the school in these days. You heard Bill say the enrollment, where it was in 2020 and where it is now. We have a sense of the Lord's blessing and ascent. Not only is this anniversary year significant, we enter this year with a significant portion of God's blessing. The good work of the school is being met with God's ascent, his favor. But that's not all. In this 50th year, we are believing God for great things related to the development of funds that would allow us to invest this capital in additional space that we need. Calvary Baptist Church has hired a gold standard capital fundraising group in Generis. They have 12 consultants and an overseer that works in the space of Christian school capital fundraising. We got the pick of the litter, and our church stepped up, and it, it was a larger check. It was $72,000 to secure the services, plus we're paying for travel when the consultant comes in town. This week will be a great week. If you're on Access Calvary, we'll be praying about this strategic week. But it's our desire, through the constituency of the school to seek the Lord together and raise these monies to develop the space. It's one thing to have the momentum of enrollment. It's another thing to have the facility that can sustain the growing momentum of enrollment. It's a wonderful problem to have, which we are going to seek to face with prayer and a reach for this capital to be raised and this space to be developed. We're believing God for good things in this endeavor. We need the space to handle the blessing of enrollment. Pray with us. Believe God for his bounty. I often think of Adoniram Judson, who said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. What does a verse like exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all we could ask or think mean if it doesn't think that God is honored as we trust him to develop things for his glory? Uh, as you get to live a little older, you realize that none of us live very long and even long tenures. I'm sure Sandy would say it doesn't seem like, it just seems like a couple weeks ago that I started my first year. And we come and we go but while we're here, we want to make a difference. I find myself at this season of my life frequently praying, Acts 13, 36, what is said of David. And David fulfilled the purpose of God in his own generation, then he fell asleep. And we all know that we're all headed for the falling asleep. All to while we live and are awake to fulfill God's purpose. And that's our prayer this year for uh, Calvary Christian School. 
that we'd really step into this 50th year with 500 students and uh, reach big for the monies that we need and have God supply our need according to his riches in glory. So uh, team, we're, really, we're for you, we're with you. We're expecting good things from God and great things from this year. So as we begin our 50th year, I want to stop and ask, what is our target? What are we trying to accomplish? My father worked for about 43 years in sheet metal fabrication for his vocation. He worked for Navistar Trucks, International Harvester Trucks, and they would press out from rolls of steel parts of the cab and he oversaw the cab shop and a couple departments that would take all the parts that had been pressed out in the press room and assemble them together and make the cab. They'd dip it, prime it, send it to the assembly plant, paint it, and bring it down from upstairs onto the chassis, and voila, the truck was finished, and they'd drive off. Whenever I would ask my dad, Dad, listen, how do you tell whether or not you're being successful at what you do? He would give me the standard answer, oh, that, that's easy. It is what is coming off of the assembly line at the end of this whole process. You can have the coolest processes. And as technology got more wrapped around the manufacturing process, I mean, it looks like Star Wars in there now as they uh, uh, make the trucks. Uh, but you can have the coolest stuff that puts the parts together. Uh, but the real test is, what kind of shape are these trucks in when they roll off the line? And how will they be served in the field and over the road? So ultimately, the test is, what are we producing? What do our widgets look like when they finish? Uh, I suppose you can hang around a couple years in preschool before you come to kindergarten, Bill, is that right? And so you can, you can hang around at school for 15 years about. A couple years of preschool, kindergarten, 12 years of grades. You can hang in there for 15 years. At the end of that 15 years, when you got, get out the other end of the tunnel, what are we aiming for? That's what I want to look at with you from a passage from Acts chapter 7, which I would invite you to turn to now. This is Stephen, a first century follower of Jesus, who is before a recalcitrant group of Jewish people who have rejected Jesus. And he's trying to persuade them that they have missed the moment. And he preaches a message, the end of which ended quite dramatically. And I hope we do not reenact that this morning. They stoned him when it was over and killed him at the end of his message. But in his message, he uses the history of Israel to press against their conscience, inviting them to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, the theme that he uses, if you're talking to a Jewish crowd and you want to get them to get with you, why, bring out one of their heroes. Hey, here's Joseph, the guy with the really sweet multicolored coat. This is Joseph. They love Joseph. Yeah, preach on Joseph. That'll be good. And he uses the story of Joseph. Now, if you want to get a Jewish crowd further lathered up, pull out another one of their heroes. He pulls out Moses. Yeah, preach on Moses. He's good. Oh, we love Moses, our great deliverer. He brought us out of Egypt. So he brings them up. But he uses them in a particular way. Here's the thesis. Joseph showed up the first time. You guys, 
brothers, I've been having this dream. You're all bowing down before me. Can you believe this dream? What? Their response to the dream was to be embittered, and they sold him off into slavery. First time, reject him. But when they had nothing to eat and bowed down before him in Egypt, after he was put over the economic affairs of the great world power, Egypt, that second time when they saw him over them, they received him as a deliverer, and he delivered for them. He gave Jacob's family something to eat and preserved their lives. And so he says, Joseph appeared once. You didn't like him. The second time, you really loved the beauty of that deliverer. Then he goes to Moses. Moses at 40 goes out, sees one of his brothers, a Jewish person, being mistreated by the Egyptians, and he took up the honor and actually slew the Egyptian. The next day he goes back out, and two Jewish brothers are fighting with each other. They say, come on, don't be fighting. We're related to each other. Hey, what are you going to kill one of us just like you did the other? They rejected him as a deliverer. He went away for 40 years. But when Pharaoh put his foot against the neck of the people of God in Egypt, they were ready to take him up the second time. And the second time when he shows up, it's like, hey, stand still and see the salvation of God at the Red Sea. And when it parted, it's like, hey, we're really glad the deliverer showed up. We like the deliverer now. And in the same way, this is the message that Stephen brings to the Jewish people when he says, Jesus showed up the first time and what have you done to him? You've crucified him. There's a long history of this, but he's coming again, and I urge you to embrace him. Well, it didn't go down well that day. They killed him. Uh, But forcibly, he brought their hearts out to the Lord, which I am praying the Lord would bring our hearts out to him. I want to read 25 verses this morning. It's a longer passage. It will help us, and I want to go two different directions. First, I want to talk about the mood of our day, which is not dissimilar to the mood of the day of Moses. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. But secondly, I want to specifically focus in on our target at school. If the widget at the end of the assembly line is what we're to focus on, what do we want those kids to look like when we finish? What are we aiming for? Uh, Some wag has said, of course, we have a much better chance of hitting the target if, in fact, we have one. So what is our target? That's what we'll look at. Acts 7.13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. and he was, a, he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up 
as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when he was 40 years old, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. For I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Hear the word of the Lord. Point number one, the hope of the people of God has always been fueled by the promise of God's deliverer. Even from the cursed oracle of Genesis 3.15, to Eve, Eve, one of your sons down the line will strike the serpent, the devil of old, on the head, though he will receive a wound in his heel. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, which is quoted in this chapter in verse 37, Acts 7, 37. One day God will raise up the prophet from among the children of Israel, who will be the great deliverer. And we head to the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, and the coming of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, the ultimate deliverer. Now, there are three links to this chain of God bringing us to our hope. Link number one is periodically the people of God find themselves in new eras full of fresh challenges. Look at verses 17 and 18. There arose over Egypt, another king who did not know Joseph. Now in differential geometry, now if you don't remember anything about differential geometry, be of good cheer. I don't either as I stand here using this. 
But there started to be a term used called an inflection point, the point at which as you're working through the problem that the uh, line passes from the x-axis to the y-axis and, and, and that, that point of inflection as you're plotting this out on the x-y-axis, that point of departure through the line is called the inflection point. Now this is being used now by talking heads on TV suggesting when there are paradigm shifts, paradigm model, uh, seismic changes, well, there came an inflection point in Egypt's history when after Joseph, a two-bit prisoner who interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and was raised up to be the economic advisor and controller of the wealth, the most wealthiest nation in the world, as they had seven great years and he archived all of the bounty and then passed it out when they had seven lean years and there was nothing to eat. He was the great deliverer, raised up by God. Most people in Egypt thought he was raised up to save Egypt. God sent him ahead of time to Egypt to save Israel because Jacob's family had nothing to eat. And they went there to Egypt where God had already prepositioned a deliverer. This is what he does. But periodically in our history with our Lord, the people of God find themselves in new eras, in inflection points. Right now, we are feeling like it's something akin to a cultural king that has arisen who knows not Joseph. We are feeling the ground shift under our feet. They aren't small tremors. You can almost feel tectonic shifts. For example, when is the last time you heard anyone, any talking head on any TV program, say anything about, here it is, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Nobody's using that term because that has been canceled and cannot now be referred to. We are living in a brand new day. Whatever swage the Judeo-Christian ethic has had with its inherent element at some level of gospel Christianity, that's long gone or is at least going. It was a new day in the cultural memory when Joseph lived there. Now, there were two sectors of growing cluelessness. One is the culture without the people of God. Egypt substantially just lost their history and what God had did in raising up a deliverer. It was just lost on them. That's without the people of God. And our culture is losing a memory of gospel faithfulness. And one of the glories of living for Christ in our age is we can live out loud with courage and still embody what it means to know the Lord and live out the hope of a gospel life. That's your privilege this week if you know Christ as your Savior. Uh, we'll have a good week. Who would not have a good week uh, with that great privilege before us? But also within the people of God, there were struggles because generations rose up and the children of the people of God lost sight of who Joseph was. Their storied history. Now, there's two reasons why that's so. Number one is because parents, grandparents, and the people of God ceased to have a priority of teaching children the history of God's work with his people. Eric, why do you have Sunday school? Eric, why do we have Awana? Why have we remodeled a lot of our children's spaces and are working hard in these environments to teach kids the gospel? Because we want a new generation 
to never forget what a great deliverer we have in Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, Imperfectly, in the midst of struggles and great victories, that's what we're trying to do. That's what's going on at Calvary Christian School. But there's another reason, not only because we haven't taught our children, but there's another reason why some of our children have walked away, and that's because we might as well look at the gospel truth of the whole thing. They've seen what it has meant for those closest to them to live for Christ, and they have said to themselves, if that's what it is, I don't want to be a part of that. Hypocrisy, inauthenticity, One of the glories of an authentic life is it can't be dismissed. First by our children who know it mostly from us, but then by those around us, our work associates, our neighbor. You just can't dismiss it. It has a shelf life that's not easily dismissible. Some children give up the faith and we think, oh, they're they're terrible, that generation's terrible, when really it's a commentary on us and what they've seen in inauthenticity in us. Now, by the way, the race is not to the parental swift. And I know really godly parents who've had hellions get up and get out of their house. But oh, the privilege, while we have them for a few years of stewarding the child-rearing years with an authentic gospel life. Periodically, the people of God find themselves in new eras full of fresh challenges Now, the second link in this change is God knows all about the situation in which we find ourselves. I find some people so upset, so much full of an anxious anxious heart. Oh, Eric, it's a wicked world out there. It's terrible. I want you to know that nobody is wringing their hands in heaven. And I also want you to know that God knows all about the situations we find ourselves in. Listen to these verses. I've thought about you and some of the things that some of you are going through that's just the equivalent of getting kicked in the teeth and in the shins and getting beat down with a ball bat. And here you lie with health, with extended family issues, with loss, with struggle. And you say to yourself, does anybody even know? Does anybody even care? How about this? Exodus 2.25. The people of God had it tough. The pressure was on. Okay, make your bricks, but you find your own straw. Okay, have your children, but we're going to kill all the male children and leave them exposed. Isn't that interesting? The effects on newborn children. Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Exodus 3.7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. 3.16, he says, The Lord God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. 431, and the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen the affliction, they bowed with their head and worshiped. The people believed then that God had seen them and knew what they were going through. Are you going through something difficult this morning? You say, no, Eric, my life's going pretty good. Stay tuned. It's a broken world. And just re- remind yourself that when you get there, God will know everything about what you're going through and be attentive to you as you go through it. 
The people of God face some dire straits. I love the solace of Psalm 1-6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. What are you going through this morning? What will you face this year as a teacher or a staff member? You know what? God knows. And he will face it with you and be beside you. The third link in the chain is that God's great work is to show his people the glory of our deliverer, Jesus Christ. How do you think Joseph looked when the brothers looked up and realized that the one in charge of all the food was their brother Joseph? And he was willing to... I think Joseph never looked more beautiful when they looked up and recognized that as their brother. How do you think Moses looked at the Red Sea when the Egyptian army is bearing down on them and he raises his staff and says, stand still and see the salvation of God. I think the most beautiful person they ever saw was the deliverer. All to hold up Jesus Christ as the beautiful deliverer before this generation and every generation. And he is one so beautiful God's great deliverers are beautiful to the people of God. Fairest Lord Jesus, isn't that right? We recognize the beauty of Christ. By the way, I challenge you teachers this morning, Luke 6.40, Jesus said everyone after he is fully trained will be like his teachers. Is that what we want? You want everybody at Calvary Christian School, when they finish, get off the assembly line to look like you? Should I want everyone to look like you? Everyone, after he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Is that a foreboding warning or a glorious promise? It is when we are like Jesus. Remember what was said of those two-bit country boys from Galilee? By the time they get to Acts 17, 6, they've turned the whole world upside down and following Jesus. But they took notice that they had, and here's Luke's phrase, they took notice that they had been with Jesus. I wonder if your students, I wonder if our work associates, I wonder if our neighbors ever pick up a sense of the distinction of who we are fundamentally because Jesus Christ lives in us. And to be with us is a hint and a picture in measure of being with Jesus. Isn't that what the implication of Paul saying for me to live is Christ. The hope of the people of God has always been fueled by the promise of God's deliverer. What if I were to tell you that the whole goal of the mission of Calvary Christian School is to raise up, here it is, little Christs. That is those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and who are growing toward the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that to be with them would in some sense be what it would mean to be with Jesus. What developments frame Calvary Christian School's mission of raising little Christs? There's three developments that frame our target. Isn't it true? Development number one, developing minds. Our mission is to show developing minds the mastery of the great disciplines of learning. Look at verse 22 of Acts chapter 7. It says something about Moses. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Now, Solomon 
King David of Israel's son was said to be the wisest man in all the earth. In order to accent just how very wise he was, in 1 Kings 4.30 it said, his wisdom was greater than the wisdom of Egypt. Now why was that alluded to? Because the rungs on the ladder, the highest wisdom in the ancient Near East was considered to be the Egyptians. But here is Solomon who's wiser than the wisdom in Egypt, but it showcases the glory of Egypt's wisdom, the dominating world power of that day in the ancient Near East. This is the school that Moses went to for education. Wisdom is skill in living. That's knowledge translated to wisdom. It's not that we want to fill minds with facts, but it is in being exposed to knowledge that we then have the opportunity to develop wisdom. And the art and the craft of teaching is moving that needle from knowledge to wisdom. And this movement from knowledge to wisdom is about that assembly line and what happens when another group will graduate, the Lord willing, next May in our 50th year. Now Frank Gabeline said that all truth is God's truth. And in a former generation, everybody used to read the pattern of God's truth, the integration of faith and learning. And some are getting away from that. But what we need to do is constantly renew our minds. Andy sent me out to buy some honey. I, I, I don't shop. And I was trying to help her with an errand. She said, go over and get some honey at the market. So I, I went up to the market and I had to find the lady selling honey in her tent. And, and a storm was coming in. Everybody was packing out. Couldn't find anything. I said, who's, who's selling honey? Where is she? And the lady said, oh, I, I'm, I'm there. And she says, now, sir, do you want dark honey or light honey? I just want honey. I came up here to buy some honey. Here's a bottle. You know, I want this much of a bottle of honey. And she said, well, I said, well, why is there light and dark honey? She said, well, it depends on the comb. And I said, well, how am I supposed to pick out what? I I don't know. And and I said, why is there different colors? She said, well, it's just the different pollinations. It depends on the hive. And I said, well, what do you do? She says, well, I just take the comb out. I cut it off on the top of layered cheesecloth. And I just let it all filter through. And at the bottom, it'll be the pure, filtered honey. And I thought, well, I'll take the light one instead of the dark one. And uh, so far, so good, you know, on the light one at home with reception. But um, I thought of that this week because developing a Christian world and life view is like cheesecloth. Which as we are exposed to all the information that we expose to, we just push it through the grid of a renewed Christian mind. This is important stuff. Our mission has an academic element. And it matters. Uh, how we think, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the way we think affects how we live. And to fill our minds with robust visions of the way of Christ and developing a Christian grid to evaluate everything like that cheese 
cloth, which sifts all the honey till you get to that pure stuff that is delightful. That's what we're trying to do. When a person grabs a hold of the diploma at the end of that experience to have a developed mind that has acquainted them with all of the disciplines in the academy and yet urged them to move toward a wisdom, a skill in living in response to what they've been exposed to, that's the treasure of a great Christian education. The question before us is that what is happening because that development, the development of a strong mind is important. What's interesting, and I love our mission of our Christian school. We have a number of homeschool parents here. We have a number who send their kids to Christian schools. We have children who go to public schools. Isn't it interesting that Moses went to a government school? He went to public school. And God used the education that he got there as a part of his development. Now, I realize there's some cockeyed ideas of President Denver concerned about the seminary, Haddon Robinson, in a former generation. His daughter went to Harvard. He said when she was finished, hey, did you, was your faith beat on at Harvard? She said, every class. Said, well, um, how'd you hang in there? She said, well, Dad, I'll, I'll just level with you. He said, did you ever doubt? He said, oh, yeah, I doubted. And, and the core presupposition of my faith, they were challenged. He said, well, how'd you hang in there? He said, well, I thought of your faithful life. And I thought of what you believe. And when I couldn't believe and was being swallowed up with doubt, she said, Dad, I just, as it were, stood on top of your shoulders and said, well, that's where Dad is. So I'm going to try to be right there on the strength of his resolve and I'm going to keep going. I appreciate that. Um, we need to develop minds. Secondly, we need to develop hearts. Did you notice verse 23? When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Came into his heart. The heart is the seat of our core passions and our trajectory, the wellspring of our aspiration. What's in your heart? What do you want? Verse 51 talks about a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the spirit. You, we have an English phrase, oh, she really developed a heart for that. A part of this assembly line and our widget, when we get them off, what we want is not only minds that are sifting all of the data coming to us in an information age in a Christian way, yielding ourselves to what God has said. The perpetual most important question is always, has God really said? That continues to be the life's most important question. And how you answer that shapes the rest of your life. Developing a heart. Developed hearts have to be cultivated, manicured, and maintained. That's the role of a family in nurturing a child in gospel holiness. That's the role of a church family, loving these children and the new generation. That's the role of Calvary Christian School, cultivating, manicuring, maintaining. Aristotle was asked for a definition of rhetoric, and he gave one that kind of stumped him. He said, rhetoric is a good man speaking well. Everybody thought he was going to talk about speaking well. 
all of the doctrines of how you put together a cogent presentation that is coherent and will shape a person's mind as it is given, uh, speaking well. Everybody thought he was going to talk about that. But he said true rhetoric is both speaking well, but it's also the good man. That is that character and its formation matters to thinking well, and it's when you put together the mind and, you, and the heart that you have a transaction that brings about a life of influence. Finally, it's developing will. We'll go to Hebrews 11 for one verse and quit. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 speak to Moses' will. Notice that his mind was in a place, his heart was groomed to a place, that together they brought his will to a place. By faith, Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. It's a curious statement about choices Moses made, choosing to identify with the people of God, to identify with people of faith, giving up on the pleasures of indulgence. Who are the children making those choices today? Moses takes a page out of the playbook of Christ. Selfless Jesus gave up the glory of heaven and his father's side and submitted to his father's plan. It was his father's will that Jesus would come and deliver us from the tragedy of our sin. Not my will, but yours be done. Christ was intentional. The Hebrews quotes the psalmist in chapter 10 and verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. It is written about me in the scroll. We are on a mission to deliver little Christ to a watching world, to populate our world with the development of Christ-like minds, Christ-like hearts, and Christ-like wills. That's our target for me to live as Christ, is what the Apostle Paul said. As Paul lived, Christ was seen. None of us are going to live very long. We're all going to die. We know that. What will be said of us after we die? What will the collective aspirations of our minds, our hearts, and our wills actually say about us? What is to be said when our days are done? On what do our minds focus? If David's heart was after God's, who is our heart after? In what direction is our will bent? What will the preacher say at our funeral? about our mind and our heart and our will and the kind of life that the three of them came together transactionally to make. Tim Keller died, the writer and pastor in New York City. His memorial service was this week. Keller was famous for teaching the Bible like this. For example, he would come to the book of Esther. If he was looking at Acts chapter 7, he would say, Joseph is admired because he's a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is the greater hero than Joseph. Moses is admired because he's a great deliverer and a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is a greater deliverer than Moses, uh, which is why we read Hebrews chapter 3. Travis read it this morning. 
Jesus, the greater Moses. He came, Keller would teach the book of Esther like this. Esther is our hero because she's like Jesus. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. I will take the risk and maybe I will be killed. Maybe I won't, but I'm going to try to save my people. And Jesus is the greater Esther because he knew he was going to die ahead of time. It, he was going to Calvary, but he went ahead knowing what he was about to face and willingly embrace it. He's a much greater Esther, but the reason we appreciate Esther is because she's like Jesus. Now, I want you to watch this two minutes from the memorial service where Sam Albury talks about Tim Keller, and I want you to think about what you have filled your mind with, what is the animating center of your heart, and where your will is pushed, and what impressions we leave with people. What will this graduating class be and every other that follows based upon the body of work by the faculty and staff as they invest in these lives? Will we be remembered as little Christs? We are here to remember and to give God thanks for a life very well lived. Uh, when Tim died, we have seen since then an outpouring of, of tributes, of people giving thanks in different ways for the impact he had had on their life. And it's been very telling that few of those tributes have been about Tim's accomplishments, though there were many. Few have been about his gifts, though his gifts were colossal. No, the focus has been on Tim's character. Not so much what he did, but who he was. As we've been hearing, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a mentor, and for so many of us, as a friend. It's noteworthy because it seems rare in our day for someone to have so much power, so much influence, and yet to be so humble and focused on others. But Tim wasn't like this because he was unusual. Tim was like this because he was following Jesus. The very qualities we have loved in Tim, we find perfectly in Jesus. What Tim was imperfectly, Christ has always been fully. Or to borrow from one of Tim's more memorable phrases, Jesus is the true and better Tim Keller. And so the best way to appreciate Tim is to think about Christ. Uh, that reading from Mark 10 has, at his, as its famous conclusion, these words from Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In that short sentence, we have encapsulated the heart of the Christian message and the key to a good life. Let's stand, let's pray, and let's sing, and let's leave to live for Christ and serve him. Father in heaven, we bring our hearts out to you in these closing moments.
and evaluate our wills and ponder what our minds are preoccupied with. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the laser focus at Calvary Christian School and at Calvary Baptist Church on pressing in to Christ, pressing on with Christ, and giving ourselves to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. And I pray that in our living, consumed by Christ, Christ could be seen and even experienced and appreciated as a result of having been with us because we've been with him. Oh Lord, by your spirit, work in our midst today, I pray in Jesus' name.